Welcome to everyone joining the webinar. We have a, a great group today, so we're just going to wait a minute or two and let everyone file into the presentation room. Well, I know we have a full presentation, so I will get started with the housekeeping while um, folks are coming into the room. Um, welcome to today's SNEB webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the executive director of SNEB and so excited to be sharing this presentation um, organized by the digital technology and the higher ed uh, divisions of SNEB. If you're not a member of SNEB, just a reminder that webinars are a member benefit um, so SNEB members have access to all SNEB um, live webinars for free and also um, recorded webinars also for free um, from the SNEB website. Uh, so our little bit of housekeeping here, we do have a PDF of the presentation slides and I am going to drop that into our chat um, for you to download and follow along. We will take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, so please type those in the Q&A block or put something in the chat and we uh, will moderate those to our presenters. Uh, as I close the webinar today, there's a short survey and we appreciate your feedback on this session. And I suppose for this topic especially, would love to hear ideas about um, other future webinar topics that you would like for us to consider. And then watch for an email follow-up. It should come by, from Zoom by Friday of this week. And that will include a link to the recording for this session, uh, the handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning um, for your attendance today. So I will go ahead and introduce um, our moderators. Um, Gina Trapicchio is the chair of the Digital Technology Division, and Rebecca Hagedorn-Hatfield is chair of the Higher Education Division. Perfect. Am I okay to go ahead and share my screen, Rachel? Share away. You should be all Great. set. Are we okay to see the right slides? Yep, that's exactly Perfect. what we need. Thanks, Rachel. All right, well, thank you all for being here today um, for our joint webinar from the Digitech Division and the Higher Education Division. Um, as mentioned, I'm Rebecca Hagedorn-Hatfield. I'm an assistant professor of food and nutrition at Meredith College. Um, and I am so honored to be co-chairing this with Gina Trapicchio, um, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences in the College of Public Health at Temple University. Um, and we came together with our two divisions that had similar goals in terms of, um, you know, bringing forth the fact that AI is really kind of changing the landscape in a lot of different disciplines, including nutrition, education, and behavior. Um, so we're very fortunate to have two amazing speakers with us today. Um, I'm going to introduce both of them, um, and then I'm going to give just a very slight introduction into AI um, and kind of the history of AI, with the caveat that I am not an AI expert. Um, so I am going to, again, just kind of guide us through, um, but then I'm going to turn it over to the real experts um, that I'm going to introduce. Um, so you'll first hear from Dr. Marissa Berger-Master. Um, she's a faculty member in nutritional sciences and population health at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research applies biomedical informatics methods to improve nutrition and community health with a special focus on marginalized groups. Dr. Berger-Master's research on data-driven collaborative diet goal setting in primary care is funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. She holds a PhD in behavioral nutrition and an MA in biomedical informatics from Columbia University. 
Dr. Berger Master is a 10-year SBB member, was the inaugural chair of the SBB's Digitech division, and was elected to a three-year term on the board of directors. You'll next hear from Dr. Alyssa Smethers. Um, she is currently an assistant professor of instruction in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences in the College of Public Health at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. At Temple, she teaches undergrad and graduate courses in nutrition and is the field placement coordinator for the MPH nutrition program. So thank you both for uh, taking the time and uh, sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, I want to share that uh, both the moderators and speakers do not have uh, conflicts to disclose. And this is covering three different nutrition educator competencies on behalf of SNEB, as well as five different or four different, excuse me, um, CDR performance indicators. Um, and you, this webinar is worth one uh, CEU. So again, just to give you a little bit of a background in terms of artificial intelligence or AI. Again, with the asterisk that I am not an AI expert, um, but really I've been trying to learn more about AI because I see one, how it could benefit me as an academic, um, but two, I know that my students are using it. So I think that I kind of have to get ahead of the game here. Um, so in terms of what is artificial intelligence, it's really that combination between engineering and com computer science that now allows software systems or machines to think and act like humans. Um, so we're starting to see more and more of our computers and our phones and other devices around that are able to mimic human intelligence. Um, and we can further break down AI into two different types of AI that we see uh, relatively often. Um, the one that is most common is reactive AI. That's AI that stores no previous data and really only functions based on what your input looks like. Um, so think about that as you watch something on Netflix, and as soon as you finish watching maybe, um, you know, The New Housewives, it's going to give you a recommendation based off of just that show that you watched. Um, so it's reacting to your behavior. Um, and then there's limited memory AI. Um, and limited memory AI is a little bit more advanced that it can start to recall historical observations or historical data, as well as combine that with pre-programmed information um, that's going to allow for more complicated tasks to be completed. Um, so think about that as, you know, a car that can drive itself. So it's able to, you know, perform tasks on its own by taking in, you know, its environment and, and you know, learning from a situation. Um, virtual assistants are very similar. So you can ask a question and it's able to give you a response. A really good example is ChatGPT. That's one that we've been using more and more often or you've been hearing about more and more often. So we're likely to see the limited memory AI being something that is advancing uh, and where we're really gonna see this kind of large shift in the future coming. Um, I do wanna share that the photo that you see on this screen is something that is generated by AI. Um, so it is, you know, something that we're using in our day-to-day -day lives as we're creating, you know, even presentation slides. You go to Canva and you're making nutrition education tools um, and they're able to kind of make images that can align with exactly what you're doing. So as a brief abbreviated history, um, there is so much information out there in terms of the kind of background of AI and what this journey looks like. Um, but we've really seen this accelerated growth of AI that really started in the 50s. Um, so you can kind of think of the birth of AI being in the 1950s um, when the concept of intelligent machines was introduced by Alan Turing. Um, so Alan Turing ended up introducing a paper that was called Computer Machinery and Intelligence. And it proposed this idea that we could test machines and how intelligent they could be. Um, at that point, the name AI was not out there, but machine learning what was, was what was commonly used. Um, at the same time, um, Arthur Samuel developed a program for a computer where uh, the computer could play checkers independently. So that was where we started to see the computer thinking like a human, right? So instead of having to have somebody else to play with, the computer was able to play checkers on its own. And then it wasn't until 1955 um, when there was a workshop, uh, workshop where we started to hear the term artificial intelligence being used 
And again, that's the term that we're kind of using nowadays with AI being thrown around. As we moved into the 60s, we started to see some of the new technology advancing. Um, so the first, what was called a chatter box, um, or what we know as a chat bot was introduced. Her name was Elsa, um, where she was able to use natural learning processing to converse with humans. Um, that's that kind of base that is then gonna set up um, the advancement to get to something like Siri that we have today. In the 1970s, the Stanford car was introduced. Um, it was actually introduced in the late 60s, um, but it wasn't until the 70s uh, that the Stanford car was able to navigate a room without humans having to interfere at all. So again, kind of that basis to set up things like Tesla. The 1980s in the first half is what we really consider an AI boom. Um, we saw a lot of government funding um, going into AI um, uh, to the point of like the Chinese government introducing what would in today's term be about $2 billion um, towards AI development. Um, and similar countries kind of following to make sure that there was advancement in the public and private sector um, in AI. Now towards the second half of the 1980s, we got what was called the AI winter, um, which is a point where we started to see a decline in that interest in AI. So the first half of the 80s, we see this big boom, and then we really see a lull that occurs in the second half of the 80s, where there just wasn't as much interest from consumers in AI-based products. Insert the 90s, and we kind of see that revamping of the early 80s AI boom. Um, and we're starting to get a lot more AI-driven technology that is interesting to the general public. Um, so things that are starting to uh, kind of hit the market that are in a toy-based industry. Um, so think about the Furbies that were introduced in the 90s. Uh, we see that AI is able to be a world champion in chess. So we're starting to see that learning um, kind of to the point of really being able to mimic the kind of higher echelon in human intelligence. Um, and then those memory capabilities are also improving at that time. So we're starting to see that AI is able to remember more and kind of process again, more like humans. Once we moved into the 2000s, we're getting more kind of regulations around emotions. Um, so there was an introduction of robots that could stimulate human emotions. Um, Google has developed a driverless car. Um, nobody at the time knew that they were working on it. Um, and we were able to uh, kind of get this introduction of the first, uh, again, what would uh, progress into kind of influencing Tesla. As we move into the 2000, out of the 2000s into the 2010s, again, there's a lot of interest in AI because we're seeing things that are very consumer driven. Um, so Roombas have hit the market. Um, so things that can help you clean your house when you're not even there. Um, we're seeing gaming systems that are really getting the attention of younger generations. Um, so things like a Wii Fit, um, where you're able to kind of see that motion and mimic on a screen. A lot of the AI that we use today, so things like Siri and Alexa um, are all being introduced. Um, in the 2006, or 2016, we have the first uh, human robot that is introduced. Her name is Sophia, um, and she has a realistic human experience, appearance, excuse me. She's able to see, replicate emotions, as well as communicate. Um, so we're starting again to see these advances in what robotics can really do and that AI technology that can drive robotics. Which takes us to where we are today. Um, there's a boom of open AI. So there are a lot of uh, more public uh, AI resources out there. ChatGPT is probably one that you've all heard of. Um, open AI also has Dolly, which is kind of like ChatGPT, but for images. Um, and there are numerous other AI tools out there that have been introduced in pretty much any aspect of your job. Um, there's kind of an AI tool that can help with that. Some free, some not free. Um, we're currently at the point where there has been a cause, a call to pause AI beyond chat or GPT-4. Um, so a lot of the kind of large players in the tech game, so individuals like Elon, or, uh, Elon Musk, um, have called to kind of make sure that we have safeguards in place before we continue to advance this technology without understanding kind of the data and privacy concerns. Um, so that's kind of where we are today. Thinking about where we're gonna go, um, 
there's likely expansion that's going to happen from here. And it's likely going to, you know, touch every aspect of our careers and our personal lives. Um, from a nutrition standpoint, we can see influences in the agricultural system, in the educational system, and in the healthcare system. So if you're thinking, well, I don't use these in my job, um, it's very common that in our everyday lives, we use AI in some way. Um, to the point, if you check your email, you're not getting all of those spam emails, and you didn't decide that on your own, right? So you didn't decide that everything was spam. Some things you can mark as spam, but AI is powering that spam checker on your Gmail account, which as academics, we're probably all grateful for um, so that we don't have as many emails to navigate through there. Um, maps. So if you are trying to walk somewhere or drive somewhere um, and you're able to see, well, my route just changed because there's traffic, um, that's AI power that is, you know, updating that time and, and changing your route so that you can get where you need to go. Um, technology to recognize your face, um, to unlock your iPhone, um, asking Alexa, what's the weather going to be today? All things that we use in our day-to-day -day lives, um, or you might use in your day-to-day -day life, that is generated by AI. And the last thing that I'll mention here is that there are tons of resources out there for nutrition educators. Um, we're gonna hear about some different resources today. And again, we can talk about this a little bit at the end when Gina leads a Q&A session, um, but we just wanted to share that really any aspect for nutrition educators um, can be supported by AI. That doesn't mean that you need to fully rely on AI, but there are tons of tools out there that can help to uh, expedite the work that we're doing. Um, so from cre creating PowerPoints um, to nutrition education materials, analyzing data, finding literature. Um, so at the bottom of this slide, you'll see a link to a, a resource at Temple that breaks down different AI uh, resources that educators can be using. Um, there are other resources out there. Um, Temples just kind of gives a, a good overlay, um, but again, there are other institutions that have uh, information to share as well. Um, so again, just a little bit of background information to kind of guide us where we're going today, um, but I will go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Burgermaster, um, who will share about AI and nutrition education research. Thanks, Becca. Hi, everybody. Nice to see some familiar names in the participant list. Hi, friends. Hi, Digitech uh, folks. I'm going to give two examples of how I've used AI in my own um, research. And I, I only have about 15 minutes to talk about this. So if there's specific, I've really honed in on um, the, the AI aspect of this and how I think about this. So, um, oh, sorry, I'm not advancing my own slides. I forgot. <laughs> Would you go ahead to the next slide? Thanks. So, um, AI, as uh, uh, Becca just gave this um, this great overview history of AI and sort of an orientation. So, I'm not going to go too much into what is AI, but I just want to emphasize something that everybody here probably already knows. It's not magic. It's um, data science and computer science, right? So, um, you know, yes, Terminator and like all that. Yeah, we can have a whole philosophical discussion about this. But for the purposes of today, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, an example of using machine learning in AI to inform nutrition education research. And then I'm going to show a different um, type of AI. Um, that's still data-driven, but it's um, called a knowledge base and inference engine. And I'll talk a little bit, show a little bit about how these two different um, types of data-driven AI um, can be applied in nutrition um, education. Next slide, please. So in, in my first example, um, I am used machine learning um, to, to try to solve this issue that many of us are probably quite familiar with. And this is the issue of treatment effect heterogeneity, right? So um, often we conduct a nutrition education um, intervention and um, have a small-ish 
effect size or no effect size, but we also noticed that it works really well for some people and doesn't work so well for other people. Um, however, we tend to describe this heterogeneity in who the treatment affects after the intervention. Um, and we recognize that it's highly contextual, right? So I'm telling you things you probably already know, but what I uh, set out to do is try to figure out if we could use machine learning to predict intervention response prior to developing the intervention. So we could actually have some kind of prescription as it were of the ideal combination of intervention components that would be most helpful to help us target or tailor an intervention. And so the implication here would be that we could create precision health interventions um, somewhat analogous to the uh, idea of precision medicine interventions that lean on um, genetic heterogeneity to uh, tailor uh, treatments for diseases. Next slide, please. So sort of the idea here was if we could phenotype ahead of an intervention, we could go from this heterogeneous um, group of, of folks for whom we're designing nutrition education to a, a sort of more prescribed, tailored or targeted approach and say, you know, these folks will benefit from this. These folks have similar contextual factors. So maybe there's a different kind of intervention. Um, next slide, please. So um, one, one thing that we think about, you know, so um, Becca was mentioning that I, I did my postdoc in um, biomedical informatics. So that's the field that brings together computer science and um, clinical sciences in, into sort of an uh, applied um, uh, field. And so one of the things that we do in biomedical informatics is like think about the how we apply um, artificial intelligence tools and what it would mean for them to actually be doing what we set out for them to do. So it's a sort of validation um, exercise. So when I was thinking about this issue of phenotypes in designing uh, how we would use them to design health behavior interventions or nutrition education interventions, I came up with a list of things that these phenotypes would need to achieve. So they need to include both individual level psychological determinants of health, but also system level and, and um, outside of the individual social determinants of health. They would need to actually be conceptually meaningful so we could do something with them. And they'd have to highlight things that we could intervene on with our nutrition education, right? So we'd want to see targets, intervention targets in these phenotypes, just like in precision medicine, we want to see the genetic targets for the medications that are being developed, right? And then it would need to be linked to a relevant health outcome. So next slide, please. Um, so um, <laughs> this was a, a long-term project and we uh, finally figured out how to do this and uh, got this published um, in 2022. So um, we, this is, I'm not going to go into all the details behind the model, but this is a model um, called a uh, multi-channel mixed membership modeling that we applied to this problem. Um, we use survey data from a large community cohort of uh, about 6,000 participants in Northern Manhattan. So it was a, a, similar geographic region, very uh, similar demographics. I think 96% of the participants in the survey um, uh, reported themselves to be Hispanic or Latinx. Um, and yet, uh, when we uh, uh, developed this model and in the machine learning paradigm, we therefore um, split our data into multiple data sets. We had a training data set, a testing data set, and a validation data set to confirm that what we were learning from these data um, actually held up. And so next slide, um, through this MC3M model, we identified 20 phenotypes that represent conceptually meaningful population subgroups. What you can see here in, in these uh, graphs is that um, each person in the data set, those over 5,000 people uh, in the final data set, most of them were represented by one of these 
these groupings, these phenotypes, some were represented by two. But what that means is that we were actually differentiating among the people in the in the data set. And then what you can see in, on the um, on the right side of the screen is each of the 20 phenotypes, there's a, a fairly broad uh, variety of how many people were represented by each of the phenotypes. So you can see there are differences among uh, people based on um, what we uh, found in this model. Next slide, please. Um, and then, a, so a second desiderata was that we needed to be able to find intervention targets. So here's some word clouds. Um, it, it's, it was pretty tricky to actually figure out a good data viz for um, for the uh, results of the this model. But what you can see here is um, these are two of the phenotypes, and you'll see in a minute that these were two that were related to a relevant health outcome. And um, there's there's you know there's a big difference between what you see in phenotype ten versus uh, phenotype 18, and you might pick out that, um, um, let's see, there's, so um, in phenotype 10, the, these folks aren't getting, having a lot of um, chronic stressors, they eat out weekly, they perceive themselves to be less active than their peers, they're not getting vigorous activity, moderate activity, or limited walking. So you're already getting a sense of, oh, maybe I can think about some things that I could intervene on here versus phenotype 18, poor sleep. Uh, they also are getting no vigorous activity, um, but they've got a lot of chronic stressors. Um, so perhaps um, they're also, I see Medicaid enrollee. So there's some contextual factors that are quite different between these two groups that might inform um, intervention design. Next slide, please. And then finally, um, this is a, a this plot is just showing the relationship between each of the twenty phenotypes, and um, uh, it's a a logistic regression. So this is if uh, these phenotypes are related to elevated weight status, um, and yes, there are issues with BMI, et cetera. Uh, but this is anybody, This what you can see here is that these phenotypes are differently linked to um, weight status. Some of, the, uh, some of the phenotypes like two and eight and 15 are related to, um, to not having elevated weight status. And then the two that I showed you, 10 and 18 were related, um, significantly related to um, elevated weight status. Next slide, please. So the implications here are that we were able to use this unsupervised latent variable modeling and combine that with ideas from behavioral theory, right? So mediators and moderators, these different things that we know need to be included in intervention design. And we were able to model those together. So we could therefore depict the complex interactions between individual level and system level um, determinants of health. And again, as I mentioned, it was a very, um, it was a hetero, uh, sorry, it was a homogeneous population as we would define it sort of in an intervention design context. And yet we found so many differences across this um, homogenous group that are relevant to intervention design. Um, one limitation that I do want to point out is that these uh, these phenotypes aren't just like, so we didn't label them and say there's the, uh, you know, the, the group that has high stress and low income versus this group. It was, it's not so much that the phenotypes themselves are generalizable. It's more that the model could be generalizable to potentially use in future intervention design. The caveat there is that we had a data set with 6,000 people. That's one of the, ca the catch with AI is that you need a large data set in most cases in order to get these unsupervised models that can tell you something from the data that you don't already know. Um, and then you can think about how we might be able to use psychosocial behavioral phenotypes, both in sort of an epidemiological way, but more importantly for us in an intervention design context, explaining risk factors, identifying subgroups for whom they might need 
a different intervention, um, identifying intervention targets, but also looking at the context within which these targets might be occurring. And then finally, um, potentially in the future, predicting intervention response, especially if we had more continuous uh, data streams to apply in an intervention like this. All right, next slide, example two. So another kind of AI is this um, knowledge base and inference engine model. And sometimes this is called first generation AI. And so this is not in any way like the large language models like ChatGPT. Um, however, it still has um, some potential benefits, especially in the area of nutrition education. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about this project um, where we developed a clinical a clinical decision support system for collaborative diet goal setting in primary care. So the problem here in this situation is that um, primary care providers, when they talk about nutrition, diet, weight with their patients, their patients have more success reaching their diet goals. However, diet counseling rarely happens in practice. This is a, an issue that many people are, are familiar with personally. Um, doctors aren't trained in nutrition. They don't know what to say. They lack confidence in talking about nutrition. And yet most people expect their doctor to talk about nutrition, especially as diet-related chronic diseases on the rise. So our solution to this problem was a software that we developed called Nutri. Um, it's a clinical decision support and it uses tech, uh, technology for specialized or time-consuming tasks to offload these off the primary care provider and onto technology um, to make it more reasonable to do them um, in a brief primary care appointment. So these tasks are diet data collection, diet data synthesis, and guiding uh, providers through dietary behavior change goal setting process, which is something they don't learn in school. And, and so the implication is that this might make it possible for um, doc, primary care providers, doctors, nurse practitioners to provide brief diet counseling that is helpful for patients to kind of seed them um, in their behavior change, um, also potentially increasing referrals or follow through on referrals. Um, to dietetics. Next slide, please. So um, the idea, is, so another way to call this um, knowledge base and inference in engine combination is an expert system. That's sort of the sort of clinical decision uh, support is called. And this is a schematic of, of how our expert system Nutri works. So we took um, nutrition knowledge from registered dietitians, behavioral nutritionists. Um, we took uh, dietary guidelines for Americans and uh, through through an iterative process, we developed a knowledge base, which is essentially a set of rules that take all those things that we know in our minds and minds of dietitians and behavior change experts and put it into a way that's readable to a computer so that when a patient's data, in this case, it's coming from ASA 24, is combined with this set of rules, it's able to present helpful information to providers and patients so that they can make a decision about what kind of diet goal they might wanna have. So if you move forward, I think the next slide is starting to show how this works. Oh, wait, hold on, desiderata. I talked about this before. Um, sorry, no, we'll go to the desiderata and then I'll show the interface. So in order for Nutri to actually support this goal of doing um, collaborative diet goal setting in primary care, this AI, this first generation AI would need to differentiate goals across patients. So we would need, you know, if it just always said eat fruits and vegetables, well, we could have told everybody to say that already. We knew that. <laughs> But is there, from the patient's data, can we home in on, this is the one goal that's gonna have impact for you based on your uh, diet data. It will also encourage PCPs to select a recommended goal. And then um, it would have to actually be useful and used because having an AI that's not used is not going to affect practice in any way. So next slide. Um, 
Thank you. So here's a just a quick overview. This is the, the first screen. This is the main AI part of, of Nutri. This is where the patient's um, diet data has been synthesized. And you can see at the top, there's the most recommended goals that Nutri has designated as most likely to impact on patients' um, diet. And there's a lot of help here for providers on how they might talk about this with their patient. So next slide. Um, what we, and so what we did here in our uh, trial, we had 60, oh, not 60, 57, oh, 58, it says so right there. Um, 58 participants completed ASA 24 and we ran their um, data through Nutri. You can see that there's a range of different goals that, um, that were, uh, chosen by Nutri, demonstrating that it, it has, it differentiates across goals. So next slide. And then after that, um, so that's not part of the interface, but after that first screen, the second screen really helps the uh, patient and provider have a conversation about what kind of goal the, the patient wants to follow. And what you can see here is that it pipes in um, examples of from the patient's diet. We did a lot of um, user-centered designs. We worked with both patients and providers to figure out what they needed at the point of care in order to have this conversation. And then next slide. Finally, um, this is more, this is less about AI, um, more about just um, this, we then, transfer this information to the health record and to patient education. So that's the three, three uh, step workflow for Nutri. Next slide. Um, we, um, what we found in our pot, so is it useful and usable in, in real life? We piloted this in a clinic uh, network here in central Texas. Um, and when we, uh, in, in a randomized control trial, sorry, that's an important part, but um, our, Primary care providers use Nutri 100% of times that it was presented to them in the appointment, um, which is pretty unheard of in technology research. Um, they selected one of the recommended goals to talk about with their patient 89% of the time. And then patients whose PCPs were assigned to the Nutri group were had two times greater odds of reporting they set a diet goal when we followed up with them a week after their appointment. Um, and what you can see on the right side is that there was a significant difference in um, the control group and the nutri group. These are providers and how uh, how they felt about their um, diet counseling uh, competence at the conclusion. Next slide. I think this is we're getting close to the end. Two things I want to uh, sort of bring up as caveats for this kind of AI that's like highly applied and using in a uh, practice context, user-centered design was essential to this. We changed our, um, our interface dramatically from our first draft of it to what actually went into the software. And you can, I won't read this out loud, but you can see this idea, the to our providers, they were really um, invested in the idea that this, kind of tool could be helpful to them because it really only took a couple minutes to do it. So we worked very hard on streamlining. Um, next slide, please. And then uh, again, these are just uh, some results from a um, usability testing. So this was simulation. So patient actor, in this case, uh, providers found that uh, Nutri would be a positive addition. Nutri makes it easier to set nutrition goals with my patients. It was, you know, that was, those are really exciting to see. And the next slide. Finally, one thing I do want to bring up is whenever we're using technology, it's really important to remember that we can inadvertently exacerbate health disparities by making our technologies available or require more resources. And I mean that in a very broad sense, time, effort, education, all those things. Um, so one thing we did in, to try to combat that is we consciously conducted some um, uh, 
assessments to, to look at who was and was not able to use the Nutri software. Among our patients, the big limiting factor was if they could use ASA 24. A lot of you are probably familiar with it and you're saying, oh yeah, I know why. Um, and so among our participants, we found no evidence of racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic differences among those who were able to complete ASA 24 independently or not. We did find a difference in age. However, the good news is because we plan, this was in an FQHC, a safety net clinic network. We, so we um, employed bilingual research assistants to support on completing ASA 24. And so um, older adults, uh, though they were disproportionately represented among those who were not able to complete ASA 24 independently, that difference went away when we provided assistance for them. Um, and they were very positive on the assistance. So next slide, I think is my final slide. Um, so the implications here are that um, AI can make data-driven personalized nutrition more accessible because we're, we can do it in a, in a setting where we can reach more people. Um, Nutri is this first generation type of AI, so it doesn't have a black box. It's inherently explainable. So the implication here is that it's not considered currently, it's not considered a device by the FDA because it's not coming up with something on its own. I can explain to you why it came up with every answer that it did. It's just not requiring us to take the time to do it in the point of, at the point of care. Um, and then also we're, we saw this uh, improved uh, PCP diet counseling competence. So I think that's my last slide. Yeah, uh, there's some stuff that I've written on AI and nutrition, but, um, and there's my lab funding. If you're wondering why we're wearing hair nets, we can talk about that later. <laughs> Thank you, Marissa. Um, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Smethers. Hi, so I'm definitely not an expert, but I have been working on incorporating um, generative AI into my classroom because I think it's really important to kind of grasp what the students are taking hold of. So I'm going to go a little bit um, today about what we're doing here at Temple and what I have, give some examples about what I've been using in my nutrition classes. Next slide. So generative AI is here. So what do we as um, nutrition faculty, dietitians, what do we do with it? Do we integrate it or don't we integrate it into our nutrition courses? Um, and if we are, what are some considerations we need to take into account for using generative AI in nutrition courses? And how can we embrace it and integrate it into our assignments? That's what I'm gonna talk about today. Next slide. So there are some details that we should consider for allowing or not allowing students to use AI in our courses. And we've been talking about this a lot at Temple, um, and how do we let students know what we expect as faculty whenever they're using AI? Because it's so easy to type any kind of response for assignments into AI. Um, so we let students know from the beginning what our class policy is on AI. And we there's kind of three options you could choose to go. One, you could embrace AI and it's encouraged and permitted. So you could state in your syllabi that you welcome and expect your students to use generative AI tools like ChatGPT in the class, and you help align that within your learning um, objectives. You tell the students that they're responsible for their information that they submit based on an AI query, and they have to make sure it doesn't violate intellectual property laws, contain misinformation or inaccurate, unethical content. And then that the use of AI tools has to be properly documented and cited in order to stay within policies of the institution. Next slide. Next slide. The next option is that AI is it there is unacceptable and unacceptable uses of AI within the classroom. So this might be a little bit more restrictions about what you're allowing students to do with generative AI. So you could say that the use of generative AI tools is permitted for some of the following activities, maybe brainstorming and refining ideas, fine tuning certain research questions, um, searching for information on your topic, generating an outline to help organize thoughts and checking things like grammar, style, format, et cetera. Next slide. But then you can also give examples of where the students should not be using AI in your course. So they shouldn't use AI to impersonate themselves in a classroom context, 
um, such as generating posts for discussion board prompts or putting AI responses into a Zoom chat, impersonating as themselves. Um, they shouldn't use it for group work unless the group has mutually agreed to use the tool for a certain part of an assignment. Um, they shouldn't use it for uh, writing a whole draft of their assignment um, or completely using it to write sentences, paragraphs, or papers to complete class assignments. Um, and again, they should, if they have any questions about what assignment can use AI generative tools and which ones cannot, they should ask for a clarification. Next slide. And then the last option you could choose is that you could just prohibit students from using AI and just say that it is not permitted in this class um, and that any use of AI tools for work in this class may be considered a violation of a policy of your institution's um, conduct code since that work is not your own. And then you can say what the penalty would be if you get a some assignment from a student that's um, been found to use generative AI. Next slide. Um, there are some tools though that will detect AI. However, these currently are, aren't very efficient at doing so. So you do need to make sure you're having conversations with your students um, if you think that they are using AI and try to find out more about what exactly they're doing. But I'm sure those will get better as we kind of AI progresses. Um, so some broader considerations to think about um, for teaching in the age of, age of AI. Um, first, we can use AI for assignment development. Um, it can assist in things like menu planning, menu design, uh, diet analysis, et cetera. And I'll go over an example, um, a, a specific example on that a little bit later. Um, it can be used for interactive learning. So it could provide the student with instant feedback. So you could have the students ask AI questions, kind of see what responsive students are generating throughout the class, build on their understanding and allow for critical thinking. You could use AI for brainstorming and outlining, outlining so allow students to generate ideas, which they can modify, edit, and refine. Um, I like to use it if students are generating titles for their papers. Sometimes they can't think of something catchy, so they would brainstorm a list of words, put it into AI, see what types of ideas it comes out, and then they can refine that and make it their own. And then also um, in data analysis and research, um, it can give students instant feedback on coding issues if they're using something like R, um, it can answer data analysis questions. So maybe they don't know which specific test to use. They can quickly ask AI. Um, and it can also assist them in interpreting their statistical results that they've generated for their research projects. Next slide. So some things that we also wanna consider or reasons we might wanna be cautious about incorporating AI into our classroom is one, it has a false sense of trust. So AI uses a really conversational tilt tone and it provides information that we assume is going to be the truth, but that's not always the case. Um, so we want to make sure that we're talking with students about how AI can disseminate inaccurate or outdated information, what they refer to as AI hallucinations. So we want to make sure that students take responsibility for verifying any output that they're using is correct and accurate ethical information. Um, a second reason to be cautious with AI is that there could be intellectual property concerns. So AI pulls from pre-existing texts, um, but it's not always clear what source or sources it is pulling from. And if you do ask AI to provide references or to find journal articles for certain papers, um, it does not always provide something that is accurate and it can even just create um, peer-reviewed articles that don't even exist. So again, students have to be aware of this and be able to fact check what they're finding. Um, and then another reason to be cautious is data set bias. So AI is trained using a vast amount of information as we've heard previously in this talk, but this also has a lot of limits. So we wanna talk with students about the bias that exists within our current system. Um, so there's, um, if you give AI a task to help generate something, you might need it to add a but statement. And I'll go over in an example what I mean by this. But when we use but, we need this solved in the context of something else. So maybe in relation to a population that is traditionally underserved or with an individual who has specific dietary restrictions and have the students kind of think critically how to evaluate those responses. Next slide. Um, so the first example I'm gonna share is how accurate is AI with providing a 24 hour recall? So I have students ask ChatGPT to create a detailed one-day diet plan for a 2,000-calorie dietary pattern, and they can choose the popular diet of their choice. Um, we have a section where we go over bad diets. Um, and they, they also may need to ask detailed follow-up questions to, to make sure they're getting a detailed diet, such as can you provide specific portion sizes for each food listed in the diet plan above? Next slide. 
So here's an example of what it says. I just asked if it could provide a one-day diet plan, 2,000 calorie diet for a keto diet. And it says certainly, um, and it gives an example of kind of what it's going to do. Next slide. So here's an example on the left there. It just says um, for lunch, it gives an example of a grilled chicken salad. It has the ingredients listed, the estimated number of calories, and then it goes into the macronutrient breakdown. Um, but as you can see, that would be very hard to put into a diet analysis program because it doesn't give the serving sizes. So that's where you need to add that. Um, you might need to add more but statements or additional qualifiers. Um, so on the one on the right, it gives portion sizes for each of those items that the students could now put into a data analysis program um, to see what type of information is it providing? Is it providing 2,000 calories? How far off is it? Is it meeting those requirements um, of a keto diet or other specific popular diets? And if not, what are some of those differences? Next slide. So by doing this, it helps the students kind of use ChatGTP to generate a diet. We can get different diets throughout the class. They can review, analyze, is that information accurate? Um, and it allows them to develop those critical thinking and research skills that they can then use as nutrition professionals. Next slide. So another example of kind of doing a similar thing with the 24 hour recall is how good is or accurate is AI at providing this type of information if we get even more specific. So it could give a general 2000 calorie diet, um, but what if we need it to be tailored to some of an underserved population like somebody who's using SNAP benefits? Next slide. Um, so it said that it was able to do this and it kind of gave some um, options at the end of how they could choose options that might not cost as much. So things like protein using beans instead of meats. Next slide. But when I asked for the cost of the menu that it provided, and we know that prices vary depending on your location store, but on average, it was approximately $19.50 for that 2000 calorie keto diet, um, which would be a little bit expensive if somebody was using SNAP benefits. Next slide. Um, so I asked it to adjust that diet and make something that was only $6 for a total daily cost. And it was able to do that. However, when we went back and analyzed that data, next slide, in order to cut those costs, it also cut calories. So now that 2000 calorie diet, those, that recommendation is no longer being met. It's now only providing 1400 calorie, um, calories for $6. So it's not quite able to make those adjustments that a student could then go in and modify to help create that um, diet plan. So just some additional considerations to think about with AI. Um, I tried to get it to create an unhealthy dietary pattern that my students could then modify, but it, even how I tried to word it, it would not. It kept saying that an unhealthy diet plan goes against their promoted well-being and good health, which I mean, that is great. So one limitation, it, does, it won't create everything that you want. Um, next slide. It does advocate for the registered dietitian. So it always says at the bottom for the um, individual to consult with a healthcare provider or registered dietitian before making dietary changes. Um, so it's good at advocating for the profession. Next slide. Um, and it just always to remember, it still provides a lot of inaccurate and misinformation. Um, and also it's changing constantly. So um, the stuff I put on the slides today could be different and need to be updated next week. So just always kind of take that into consideration. Next slide. Um, so in summary, we just want to consider being transparent with students on our classroom policies around using generative AI. They all know that it exists. So just making sure that we're communicating with them how we want to incorporate it into our classroom setting. Consider the pros and cons of incorporating generative AI into your courses for assignments, discussions, etc. And consider how we can use it in assignments to help um, students think critically and apply the information that they have learned. I think that's the last, last slide. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. And I see Marissa has already been busy answering some of our Q&As in the question box. So thank you so much. We do have about five minutes left for questions. Um, so I will um, go ahead and allow um, folks to dump some more questions into the Q&A and into the chat box if you have them. 
Um, but I think we'll start with one big picture question that gets at actually some of the questions that have been dumped into the Q&A that I'd love to hear from both of you. You did a fabulous job kind of outlining some of the key considerations and some of the really exciting avenues for using this both in research and in classroom settings. But what are you thinking or some of the things we need to be thinking about as it relates to potential concerns? You know, the word harms are definitely being thrown around. Um, and, you know, potential unintended consequences in both research and nutrition education. I'd love to get your thoughts on those. That's a vitally important question, um, I think, especially as we're seeing AI um, used increasingly across healthcare. Um, it's something that's being talked about a lot. So um, I, I think that um, there's an important distinction about this idea of um, explainable AI. So if you're depending on machine learning to give you an answer that, and you don't know how it's going to get the answer, then I feel like that um, elevates concerns that doesn't, I mean, in radiology, for instance, we've seen a lot of instances where the computer is better at identifying um, lesions on a, a, a radiographic image than a doctor is even, right? So like there's some situations where a computer's just better. I was chatting um, with somebody in the Q&A. Um, humans are not really good at analyzing diet data, especially when there's a lot of it. So that's one example in nutrition education where we we can use AI to help us do something that we're not very good at. That said, doing it without um, transparency raises concerns. And it doesn't mean that they can't be mitigated and things can be tested and, and all this. But, you know, I was in a, a workshop uh, not too long ago with and there was an engineer there and he was talking about um, the driverless cars. Right. And it was not you know, it was kind of like the bar that needed to be reached, according to the engineers. I don't know how I feel about this was they just need to hurt fewer people than uh, real drivers. And we know that real drivers have a record of hurting other people. So like they don't, it was like, oh, drivers' cars don't need to reach perfection. But it's like, who's making these decisions, right? <laughs> so, um, and then by the way, um, you know, since I actually, actually since the end of September when that happened, uh, this workshop that I was at, uh, Cruz has been taken off the streets here in Austin. It was everywhere, uh, because, as you know, because of that accident. So there's, uh, it's hard. I'll let Alyssa. I'll let <laughs> yeah, Alyssa, anything to add as it relates to unintended consequences and potential harms as it relates to student learning? I think just kind of, again, telling students up front what the caveats are that go along with it. Um, we can't take everything AI says with a grain of salt. We'll take everything AI says with a grain of salt and just making sure they're aware of that and can critically think through the responses that they're getting. Um, and while AI might be good at providing something very general, once you get more specific and there's more comorbidities or um, individual things that go into diet plans, that's where really the human comes right now to be important and help provide accurate information. Yeah, thanks so much. And I think that that reiterates the point that a couple other folks put into the chat of how do we kind of make sure that we're not going to be replaced or become irrelevant, you know, and how do we kind of take into account all of these unique barriers that might come up for patients or all of these kind of unique inputs. And like Marissa said, we are limited by the inputs of the model. So we're always going to require humans who have that kind of real world understanding and that personalized connection to kind of add these very important things. People know when they're talking to a computer and even if that goes away, like human connection is never going to stop being the most important piece of a healthcare interaction. So if we can make it easier to have this human connection because we have so many constraints on time, I, I think that's going to make a big difference for people. Yeah. That's a fabulous point. I think that that's actually the perfect place to end because we are out of time. So I want to thank you both so, so much for contributing to this very important topic. 
Thank you so much to everybody who attended um, and demonstrating your interest in, in learning more. Um, we do have our contact information here. Like Rachel said at the beginning, please renew your SNEB memberships for the upcoming year or become a member. And if you're becoming a new member, consider joining the higher ed or the digital technology divisions. Um, and Rachel, I'll kick it over to you if you have anything else to close us out. Yeah, just a reminder, there'll be a short survey when I close the webinar and your feedback is appreciated on this session, as well as ideas for future um, webinar sessions. Um, then watch for an email that should arrive from Zoom by the end of the week uh, with a link to the recording, the handout, and your CEU certificate. And then we are kind of winding down the calendar year, but SNEB does have several webinars still on the schedule. Um, there's a webinar on the SNEB um, the, the Advisory Committee on Public Policy um, is talking to Dr. Carrie Cotwright next week. Um, that's an open meeting. Um, so be, just check the SNEB website uh, for anything that's upcoming between now and the end of the year. And thank you all very much for joining today. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great day.